Patrick Struby was eager to fly home to Switzerland on one of his periodic visits after spending eight years in Mexico establishing Fairtrasa, one of the world's largest fair trade organizations for avocados and other fruits from Latin America. It was the morning of January 28, 2011. Struby's then-girlfriend had come to pick him up at his home to drive him to the bus station from where he planned to go to Mexico City to take the plane back to Switzerland. I walked around the car, put my bags in, and at the moment I put the bags in, there were like two cars parked, one in the front and one in the back, and two uh, masked men came with guns, and they took me away, put me in the car, and they drove drove off. So they just like forcefully put me in the car. You know, they had like all these masks on and I was in one car Then they put me in another car and in the third car. And I, I mean, I was just like shocked, you know, I was shocked, you know, they were like putting the, the, the gun to my head. I, I got handcuffed. I got blindfolded. And then they drove me to some place in a house, in a cellar, and that's where I was kept. Hello everyone, this is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. In the clutches of the ruthless Mexican gangsters who made him watch videos of violent killings, Struby somehow kept his cool and tried to figure a way out. He was released after five days of coordinated activity between the Mexican and Swiss governments. The kidnapping gave Struby a lens into the economic conditions of his hostage takers and only renewed his commitment to building Fairtrasa as a means to lift Latin American farmers out of poverty. I'm so delighted to welcome today Patrick Struby, serial social entrepreneur, thought leader, humanitarian, and founder and executive chairman of the Fairtrasa Group. Struby, by the way, has never publicly shared the story of his kidnapping before. He's doing it here today for the first time. Patrick, welcome to When It Mattered. Thank you. Welcome, Chitra. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you know the saying, no good deed shall go unpunished, right? To me, your story definitely seems to fall under that category. So let's set the stage a bit for the lead up to that kidnapping as to why you moved to Mexico, which is a central part of the story. So you're actually of Swiss origin. Tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and the work that you were doing in 2004 in Switzerland before moving to Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. So it was never my plan to move to Mexico, you know, just to, to tell you. So no, I was born and raised in Switzerland into a very traditional Catholic family with very strong values. I remember my dad always used to tell me, you know, you have to be productive, you have to be good at school, you have to have a good job, you have to make a lot of money, and then you can have a good life. I was brought up in that environment, and so that's what I did. And my first job was uh, I became a consultant, and I loved being a consultant. And then after a couple of years, this was with Deloitte's, I got hired by our largest client, which is a very large trading company called Glencore. And they hired me. And my job was like doing supporting mergers and acquisitions. So I was in my late 20s and I was like flying around the world doing all these big transactions. And I loved it. I really loved it. I had a great time and it was, I was also good at it. And Glencore is a commodities, a huge yeah. commodities trader, but they're also into natural resources, minerals. Yeah, exactly. All that stuff, valuable stuff. Yeah, it's like, I think today it's one of the largest uh, natural resource companies. They have like mines, 
smelters, refineries. And at that time they were looking at acquisitions and that's why I was flying all around the globe to look at these potential in, in, in investments. And uh, as I said, I loved it. And my life was like in airplanes, it was in hotels, it was in meeting rooms, but they all looked the same. You know, I was like one week in, in Chile and then I was in, in the Philippines. And there was one moment that was really pivotal. I was in Peru and instead of going to these meeting rooms and these Hiltons and, and Renaissance hotels, they all looked the same, they said, we want to take you to the mine. So from Lima, we were taking a, a car and we were driving like seven, eight hours up into the Andes. I remember it was like, go, we, we were on the second highest road that you can drive by car. And like the air got thin, there were people in the car that needed like oxygen masks. And then when we got to the mine, the mine manager wanted to show me where they have the highest ore content. So I was putting on this overall, you know, like this overall surface lamp. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what kind of mines they were? Yeah, so this was a, a sink and lead mine. So we were going up, driving up to, to the mine. And then when we were at the mine, I put on this overall and then there are like these tracks. So I was following the mine manager and we were going into the mine. And then they have like these elevators, like one mile you go into the mine. So I, I, I found myself in the belly of the mine. And this was really a huge epiphany for me. You know, my life was all, always in these meeting rooms and, 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 and conferences. And then I found myself like in the belly of, of an Andean mine. And I saw the miners under what conditions they were working. It was hot. It was humid. You know, it's not a good place to be when you're have like a, when you're claustrophobic. So I was like, I was not happy. And I just wanted to get out of that mine. And what happened next? Yeah. So we were, so, so then, I mean, I was going out, we, I, I left the mine and I remember was back in Lima. And then I woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning and I just, I realized with my job, I'm making the rich richer and the poor poorer. Because at the same time, the company was making a reorganization and many of those miners who already lived in very difficult situations lost their job. So this was a huge epiphany. And after that, I went back, I went back to Switzerland, I quit my job. Wow. How much of that was kind of, you said you were raised a Catholic. How much of that was like a good dose of Catholic guilt, do you think? Uh, there was definitely a good good dose of Catholic guilt. But what I think the big thing for me was I just realized I, I lived in a bubble. I, I didn't know about all that hardship. I, I, you know, it's different when you read in the paper, but when you actually see it. Your dad was very conservative, right? Believed in like, as you said, home, property, savings, you know, insurance, all this stuff. So, and now you've quit your job. You've done the exact opposite of what he has said to you. So how does that figure into like how you were thinking and what you thought you were going to do next? You know, I felt like, I felt like the black sheep in the family, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he gave me all that good advice and his son was doing the opposite, but I just knew. I knew I couldn't stay in that organization, but I also knew that I couldn't be around him. You know, he would have driven me nuts. So, uh, so when, I, when I quit my job, I decided I will go away to do a sabbatical, a sabbatical to reconsider what to do with my life. So what I did is 
I, I looked at the map at that at that point in time i've been to more than 50 countries and i wanted to go to a country i've never been to so i i looked at the map and i wanted to go to latin america because peru i had the i had the epiphany and i wanted to be so, so somewhere in that region so i picked mexico so i i then bought a one-way ticket flew to mexico landed in mexico city not knowing where to sleep and I was then just like traveling, traveling around the country. What did your dad say when you said you were going to leave? He wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. But, but I just told him that that's what I'm doing. You know, I had enough savings, so he was always like very concerned. You know, he had like five, seven insurance policies. So he would just not understand. But he knew that at least I had enough money. I didn't have to ask him for money to go there. So this was 2004, and the fair trade movement was just emerging in Europe, and you were traveling all around Mexico. What were, what were you seeing? So, I mean, I was just going really to reconsider what to do with my life. And then when I was traveling through Mexico, what I saw is I, I saw these wonderful smallholder farmers. They had these beautiful avocados, and they were living in poverty. And I couldn't understand because I saw they were like paid you know, 10 cents, 15 cents a piece. And, you know, when you, when I walk here into a store, I pay like two, three, two dollars, two dollar fifty. And I, I mean, I looked at that, I said, what's wrong here? What's wrong here? Why do these farmers live in poverty? And this is when I remembered, as you said, that the fair trade movement at that time started, they were like a number of fair trade products, like coffee, like sugar, like tea. And then I thought maybe I can do something for those farmers with fair trade. So I started to study about what, how fair, the fair trade system works. And then I picked up the phone. I picked up the phone and I called the fair trade organization and said, I'm here in Mexico. I'd love to do a project for Mexican uh, avocado farmers. Yeah, and then they said, you know, if you can do that, they gave me basically the green light to do that. But I wasn't serious. I wasn't, it wasn't my plan to start a business. I just wanted to do something meaningful. But you became very successful to the point where you decided to live in Mexico and to make this your life. Yeah, yeah. So when, the, when, when my sabbatical came to a close after one year, I was the first one globally with organic and fair trade avocados. So I had something that nobody else had. And this was the moment when I had to decide, do I go back to the big corporate world in Europe? Because I was in negotiation with another big company. Or do I continue living my dream? And then, yes, I ended up living eight years in Mexico. And you were so successful with your avocado. Uh, was it just avocado at the time doing the fair trade of setting up your company and everything that you actually, this is where the story takes a twist, right? You actually were honored in the press in Mexico as sort of a social entrepreneur. So this would have been in, in 2009. So you've spent all these years setting it up, right? And you're now starting to be recognized for your work. Yeah, so, so I think what really distinguished us, it's that we, we, you know, I started a social enterprise because the goal was lifting farmers out of poverty. You know, I mean, when you think of it, you know, I started this company in a foreign country, in a foreign language, in a foreign culture, in a foreign sector. Everything was fundamentally foreign to me. I would never have gone into agriculture you know, if I put back on my business head. For me, it was a means to an end. And so what we did is we set up that company that we would use our margin 
to develop new farmers, form cooperatives. And so we got a lot of recognition because it is a social enterprise that uses the engine of the economy, which is a business to lift farmers out of poverty versus just NGO that, that, that do the same based on donations. And this is why we got then a lot of awards for, for the work we've been doing with the company. And this is where I go back to my theme of no good deed shall go unpunished. So you're in the papers, people are seeing who you are, and it appears that some uh, unsavory characters in Mexico as also saw who you were and understood that you probably had resources. You're from Switzerland, you're getting awards. So fast forward to January 28th, 2011, nearly two years later, tell me where you are in your mind and in your journey in life and, and what happens next. Yeah, so I'm in Mexico. And I knew that there is a lot of violence and I saw that in the paper every day, but I never thought that I would be, I would be affected myself. And so, yes, so it was, it was January 28th in 2011. And it was the day I was flying home to, to Switzerland. And so that morning, my girlfriend at that time, she came to pick me up to drive me to the bus station that I would then go to Mexico City to take the, the plane back home. So what happened then is I, I came down, she had her car parked outside. I walked around the car, put my bags in, and at the moment I put the bags in, there were like two cars parked, one in the front and one in the back, and two uh, masked men came with guns and they took me away put me in the car and they drove, drove off. So they just like forcefully put me in the car. You know, they had like all these masks on and I was in one car and they put me in another car and in a third car. And I, I mean, I was just like shocked, you know, I was shocked, you know, they were like putting the, the, the gun to my head. I, I got handcuffed. I got blindfolded and then they drove me to some place in a house, in a cellar, and that's where I was kept. Wow. And did they say anything to you? What did you think was going on? I had no clue what was going on. I really sort of, I just knew, wow, this is, this is a kidnapping. I got this as a kidnapping, but I didn't know the reason, anything. Only then that first day later, they took me out from that place. And then I met like these, these mafia bosses and they were, they were then talking to me and they basically said that they want a ransom. They, they want a ransom. And if I don't pay, I would uh, just like, they would keep me. I mean, the situation was terrible. I was kept in the cellar. I was on, on a concrete floor and you know, the, it was cold, it was January and handcuffed i had a plastic water bottle as my as my pillow and it was just like it, it it was such an incredible situation and i didn't know why i didn't know why they they had me and then they talked to me and then they said we will let you free if you pay a ransom and they asked they asked first an, an amount a, a lower amount and then i remember the second time they took me out in one of these packing sheds and then they had my computer because they had all my they had all my belongings 
So they had my computer and I remember I was standing there and they were all like these people with their guns standing around me. And then they said, okay, Patrick, go into your computer. Go into your bank account. And they're speaking to you in Spanish, right? They were speaking to me in Spanish. And, and so I was speaking Spanish with, with, with them. I was speaking Spanish, but I must say at the house or in the cellar where I was kept, I was speaking English only. Because what I wanted to do is I just wanted to, 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 I wanted to hear what they were saying. And I didn't want that they, they were like, you know, hiding things so that I could basically understand what they're saying and just like see if there was any possibility for me to escape. So that's why I was speaking English in the, in the, in the house where they kept me, but with, with the, with the, with the bosses, I was speaking in. Uh, so they have your computer. Time. Yeah, and they have your, so you're speaking in Spanish, they have your computer, what happens next? Okay, so they say, okay, so now go into your bank account. Now, I had two bank accounts. I had one bank account with money, that is the Swiss account from the company, and I had another account that had no money in it. So at that time, what I did is I went into the account that had no money. So I basically go in, and then I show them and say, look, there is no money. So they look at it and they see a zero balance. And then at the same time, this was 2001, and the, the main uh, means of communication was Skype. So I had my Skype open. It was two o'clock in the morning, what was nine o'clock in Switzerland. So, and I was connected with the CFO. So suddenly that window pops up and, and the CFO from the company texts me and says, Patrick, are you alive? Are you alive? You know, the, the Swiss government is involved. They're coordinating with the, with the Mexican government. And this was the first time when I actually could talk to, to, to write to him. So I was writing to him. I said, yes, I'm alive. You know, I'm here kidnapped and, and, and they're asking for ransom. And this was the moment when then the kidnapper said, what are you doing here? But they couldn't understand because I was writing in German. And then I was just telling them that, you know, I'm talking to my CFO to see if, if we can get money. So because they saw there was a zero balance, you know, he got mad. And then he said, Patrick, the ransom is double. And that was like $350,000. So it's a significant amount. And then I was trying to argue and they said, there is no arguing. If you, if you want us to let you free, that's the amount. Otherwise you stay here. And the way that your colleague, uh, your CFO knew and the, and the Swiss government knew is because your girlfriend had reported that you had been kidnapped. Exactly. Exactly. Because she was, you know, when that happened, you know, I put the bags into the car. She saw all that. She saw that. She witnessed it. Obviously, she was also traumatized. And then she then informed the CFO. The CFO then informed the government and then the government was talking, the Swiss government was talking to the Mexican government. But another issue was my mom because my mom was expecting me to be back the, the following day. And I remember she was like baking my favorite cake. She was waiting to pick me up at the airport and nobody dared to call my mom to tell her that her son was kidnapped. So it was, it was also for my mom, it was, it, was, it, it was terrible. In the end, they had to tell her because I wouldn't come home. Oh no, I, what cake was it? <laughs> I can't remember what, I can't remember what cake it was. <laughs> she, she told me after that, but I mean, 
I mean, imagine being a mom, you know, and uh, I felt, I felt, I mean, I was kidnapped, but I felt bad. <laughs> I felt bad for her. So what happened next? So, you know, and then, you know, they kept me while they were organizing the money, you know, they kept me in this, in this, in this uh, cellar of that house. And then they, they moved me around, you know, from one house to the other. They were very well organized. And, but every time they moved me around, it was terrible because they were only driving at night. You know, then when you have like the handcuffs, you know, they're putting my head down. So it was really, it was really an, a, a very, a very painful situation. But I must say, I always kept my cool. I was never, you know, you can easily fall into panic, but I actually never fell into panic. But there was one moment I, I want to share that was really the most dramatic. And this was, it was a Saturday night and I was on the floor and then they, sh they, 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 they started to show me like these, these videos, videos that they made themselves, how they basically, how they kill people. And so they showed me that video and then together it was like they had this very loud music it was just like it was such an unbearable situation and you could see how they kill people out in the sierra and when they finished they said okay patrick now we go to the sierra so what they did they took me and then like cattle they put me on the back of one of those trucks and basically that we would drive to the sierra because I saw those, those films, so those recordings where they basically kill people in the Sierra. And this was the moment, you know, my dad passed away a year before. This was the moment when I sort of, I connected to my dad and said, dad, I, I'm coming now. This was the moment when I said, okay, well, now, this is it. This is it. Were they trying to intimidate you by saying we're going to, they showed you the videos of the killings in the Sierra, then they put you on the truck and they're like, you're on your way to the Sierra, right? Yeah. What were they trying to do? Trying to convince you to get the money faster or, or just, they were just torturing you for fun? I, I yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think it was just torturing for fun. I mean, fun. Yeah, probably because they never left. What happened is they never left, you know, because I was like waiting. Okay. So I'm going to do the drive up. So we were like an hour. An hour I was on the back of that truck and after an hour and also what I wanted to say is you know I was like okay so dad I'm coming but then at the same time what happened also is there was like this feeling deep inside of me that told me Patrick your life is not done yet you know suddenly I had, I had that knowing that my life was not done that and then a minute later they they took me off, off, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, off the, tr the the truck and back on the floor, and then that's where I then, uh, you know, stayed the whole night. Did you ever think, Dad, you were right? After all, this was exactly the situation your dad didn't want you to get into. He was trying to keep you safe. He was trying. He was trying to keep me safe, but at that at that moment, I wasn't thinking about that. I really, it was it was a matter of life and death there. And uh, no, I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that. But then yeah. the following day, the following day or two days later, you know, we got the money. We got the money. And that, there's another interesting thing that happened. And so we got the money. They told me we have the money. So they drive me again to some other place in a car. And then they take the handcuffs away and say, Patrick, now you have to sign this document. So they hand me a document. And I said, what is this? You know, so I could take off my, 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 my blindfold. And then I see a contract. 
and I see a contract that says, you know, that my company is buying avocados for like that and that amount, the amount of the, the ransom, and that I basically sign to agree to that contract. And in the back, there was a, a copy of my passport because they had my passport and it was like a legal document and the, and, and, and the lawyer already signed. So I basically, when I signed that, and then I asked that, what is this? You know, they said, you know, if you want to get free, you just sign. And so what, what it was is like an, a, a contract that they could like launder the money, you know, they could, that money wasn't just like a business contract. Tell us about the amount of the ransom and, and the fact that with what it was going to be bought for, what was this legal document saying? So the legal document was basically saying that my company would buy from them, whoever that name was, avocados in the amount of, it was between three hundred fifty dollars and $400,000. $400,000 worth of fake avocados. Yes. And the reason they wanted it legally is so they could launder it. Yeah, exactly. So they could justify. Wow. That very creative though. The fact that they had your passport and they had someone sign it. And so what, what did you, what did you do next? Did you sign it? I signed it. I mean, I was at that point, you know, Chitra at that point, the only thing you want is your, your freedom. <laughs> you know, I, I would have signed anything. I would have signed anything. And this wasn't a small feat, right? Your mother, your, your friends, they all had to raise that money in very short amount of time. Yes, 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 yes. My, my brother chipped in money, my friends chipped in money. So they just like got all that money. And even, even one of our farmers in Mexico also, also, also contributed. So everybody was contributed so we could, we could get all that money. So now there's the money, how does it get handed over? And then how do you get released? Yeah, so what happened is, then they gave me checks. They handed me checks that I would sign because I had the, the signature for the check. So I signed those checks, but at that time I didn't know, I didn't know that then the FBI, so at that time the FBI, the Mexican FBI was already in that region because of, uh, you know, my girlfriend advised the Swiss government, the Swiss government, the Mexican government. So I didn't know that, but, but they were already there. So what happened is when they went to cash the checks, all the FBI people from the Mexican government were there because they were saying, if they would not release me within 24 hours after I pay, they would step in. So they were all around them because they knew the bank, they knew the, 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 the branch office and they were, they were basically around that to see who is going to cash the, those checks. So. They, they cashed the check and then that night, the same night at two, I think about 2 a.m. early in the morning, you know, I had like, I was like smelly, you know, I was, I couldn't shave. I was like, it was like, you know, at 2 a.m. in the outskirts of that village, you know, they let me free. They let me free. They gave me back my, they gave me back my, my, my money, my purse, my, my glasses, and they just let me out. So what did you do next? So there I was, I had some money, I took a cap, and then with that cap, I went back into the city. And the FBI, they were all at my girlfriend's place. You know, actually what happened is I went first, I went to a place just at the back where I was living in a hotel because it was early in the morning and I just didn't want to wake up anybody. So I was, just, was going in, in, in that hotel. Then I called, my, I called my girlfriend in the morning and then, you know, she said, where are you? You know, then 20 minutes 
later they knocked on my door and they were like another seven seven people there and i didn't know that these were like all the police people you know that they showed me their 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 credentials and they said we are here to take you out of the country we have you have two hours to pack your bags and we have to escort you out of the country wow that's a very short amount of time to leave a life behind that you had spent eight years building it was leaving a life behind leaving a girlfriend behind leaving a business behind it was like everything all my life was in mexico all my life was in mexico so you started with an epiphany and ended up in peru ended up with a a catastrophe in mexico and now you are you have to pick up the pieces of your life so what did you do next so I mean, they escorted me out of the. So I, I had I had two hours. So I went. I picked. I, I packed my bag. You know, I, I insisted to go to the office. So I went to the office. I had a meeting with my people, as if nothing would have happened. So I wanted them to see that I'm safe or that I'm I'm healthy. And and then you know we were driving then to 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 Mexico City. I went to the the police station. They did these phantom pictures. Mug shots. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And and then the, the same evening I was back I was back on the, I was on the plane. I was on the plane back to Switzerland. So, did you feel how did you feel like here you were trying to do good in Mexico and you had to pay $400,000 in a fake purchase order to launder money for fake avocados? Did you want to give it all up or how did you feel about your experience there? You know, I was Obviously, I was traumatized, you know, and I was thinking about here, here I am, I, I go to Mexico to, to start a business to lift farmers out of poverty, and then as a thank you, I get kidnapped. <laughs> so I would have had all the reasons, I would have had all the reasons, you know, to walk away. But, you know, there was one experience that I had that happened, actually, when I still was kidnapped. You know, I mentioned that when I was um, in the house where they kept me, I was speaking Spanish. So they were like this young, this young man. They were like 17, 18, you know, the, like the guards. And so I was listening how they what they were saying. And, and then I noticed that one of them was not a bad person at all. He was not a bad person at all. And what I got is that why is he taking a position from the from, from these gangs? Because he because people in these countries, they don't have opportunities. And I was thinking if I would have been, if I would have been born there, I had to feed a family. And the only organization that offers me a job is like, is like a criminal organization. I probably would also have taken that position. So, the, so what I got is what is missing in these countries are these opportunities. Opportunities that these people can do something that is that contributes to society and not is detrimental to society and this insight gave me like then the strength to say i continue now i didn't know how i would continue because i couldn't go back to mexico <laughs> you know and, and and mexico was our headquarters but i just knew somehow i have to continue so what what happened next so here I was back in Switzerland. The first thing I did, I, I asked my girlfriend to, to, to I, I took my girlfriend out of Mexico because she was the one that informed, uh, uh, you know, the Swiss government. And I just wanted to make sure that nobody does something to her. 
So she came, she came to Switzerland and then we stayed in Switzerland. And when I was in Switzerland, I was just thinking, what, what am I doing? I, I, did, I didn't want to be in Switzerland. <laughs> I left Switzerland because I want to do something where I can be a contribution in a developing world. That's why I went there. So I didn't want to be in Switzerland and I couldn't go back to, I couldn't go back to Mexico. But then I was looking at the business. And then when I looked at the business, I saw that, you know, our importers, the, the one we, we were working with are also middlemen. What my organization does, we cut, we cut out middlemen. And so to continue with the business, I got in touch with some of my, my customers. And then what we did is we actually, I used my time to set up our own import company. Because my view in Mexico was very localized. But now that I was out of there, I saw that there is actually to continue growing and, and, and expanding and continue with, with the business. So I set up, I used the time and I set up my own import company. That's how we became a vertically integrated organization. So this was very beneficial and that actually rescued the company. And then uh, vertically integrated means what for people that are not in this world? So what it means is we, you know, what we were doing in Mexico and in Peru, we had a lot of, we had a lot of branch offices. At that time, we had offices in, in Mexico, in Peru, in Chile. And so what it means is that all the avocados and the mangoes and all those products that we were exporting, we ourselves were importing it. So my people, they were closing the container doors in Mexico. And then my people in Rotterdam at the port, they were opening it so that we actually had full control over the entire supply chain. That's amazing. And you've made a huge contribution, I think, to helping Latin American farmers get their products all over Europe and North America. You've become kind of the business model to follow, right? In Latin American countries and beyond, you've been recognized in all kinds of ways, including being named an Ashoka Fellow and, and all kinds of other things. Yes, and our business model got also copied. So we got copied many, many times and this was a beautiful recognition. But my life, you know, but, but here is Patrick now back in, in Switzerland where I didn't want to be. And so I didn't want to be in Switzerland. I, I couldn't go back to Mexico. And then what also happened, what was interesting and how I ended up living in the US is that at, the, at that time, Yale, Yale University, they reached out to me because they heard about the, 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 my company and the impact that we are creating. And so Yale had a fellowship program called the World's Fellow. So they reached out to me and said, Patrick, you, you know, you, we love what you do and you could potentially be a, a fellow if you apply for that. And because, I mean, I didn't, I didn't I, I was never my plan to go to uni university nor, nor to go to the US, but because I, I, I didn't want to be in Switzerland, didn't know where to go, couldn't go back to Mexico, I applied and I got in. So this is then when I came to Yale I spent four years at Yale. I was, I was uh, in that fellowship. After we finished the fellowship, they offered me a position. They asked me to develop a curriculum for social innovation, basically how to use models like mine to, to improve different sectors, bringing all these benefits to, to society for social and environmental purposes. And so I ended up living, living four years at Yale. And then after that, I got a professorship at Fordham I moved to, to, to New York City, and that's where I am now. And you discovered a love for teaching. Yeah, I discovered my passion for teaching. It's, it's now 10 years that I've been teaching, and I've been teaching social innovation, what is so close to my heart. So I'm basically teaching how businesses can be a source for good, a force for good. And 
and that's what I've been doing for 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 ten years. And now I'm here in 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 New York, and I'm happy. I'm happy here, and I also I'm at peace with what happened. Also, it was tra traumatic. It was it was it was a terrible situation, you know. It was at the same time it was deeply deeply transformative, and it made me who I am today. So I feel I'm much more compassionate. I'm much more empathetic because I know, I know what it means when you're born in the middle of nowhere, when you don't have opportunities. And I know how important it is that my organization and many other organizations, you know, develop these or generate these opportunities for these people that they do not have to go into criminal organization, that they can use their time and their energy to do something good for the planet. Now, you told me that for 10 years, you never told the story to last year. You never told people that you were kidnapped. Why? Yeah, you're, you're right. I never. For 10 years, I never. You know, I was always like saying, you know, I left Mexico for security, what is true. But I never told the story about the kidnapping because, you know, I didn't want to have people feel like pity for me or any of this. And I just didn't want to, I just kept it private. And then I, I remember it was the 10th anniversary. And then I said, this is part of my life. This is, this is who I am, part of my life. And that's when I decided I would start sharing it because this is just what happened to me. And it made me who I am today. And I want to close a few loose ends here just for our listeners. One is, did they ever catch the bad guys? Two, did the money ever get recovered or any of it? And what happened to your girlfriend and have you recovered emotionally? So the first question is, have they, have they captured the guys? So six months later, they did capture one of the, of the heads and that cartel got split in two. I don't know exactly how much that has to do with, with my, my, my particular case, but I would assert that it, it has an impact. What happened to my girlfriend? Um, you know, she was in, we were together in Switzerland. And then after th three months, she wanted to go back to look after her mom. And she said, why don't you come back? But I, obviously I knew I couldn't go back. We tried then California in the US. And then the opportunity with Yale came and then we, we split. So, so that was very, very unfortunate. Well, but she was there for you at a very critical moment Absolutely. in your life. <laughs> Absolutely. She was there for me. And, and still today, you know, we're very good friends. We're still very good friends. Yeah. Was the money recovered? Money was never recovered. Patrick, looking back on your life, what would you say to your younger self, that Glencore, young Glencore executive, you know, traveling around the world, high on life, and then at his lowest point in that belly of that mine in Peru, that son whose father sort of begged him to choose a secure life, but he chose to ignore that life and wound up in Mexico, got kidnapped and had to trade his life in for $400,000 of non-existent avocados. I mean, the very fruit that was kind of at the heart of his existence and the teacher, social entrepreneur that he is today. What would you say to that young man about the journey that you've been on? I mean, when you summarize this like this, Chitra, it sounds like crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I must say, I have no regrets. I have no regrets. If I would have stayed in that company, I would be a very wealthy man today. But this is my journey, you know, and I got to see this is my life journey and also with my parents, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, my, my, my father passed away, but with my mom is still alive. 
you know, and they now see, you know, what I created. And, and also, you know, when I teach, there's so many of my students, you know, they say, oh, I, I came here to the business school because my parents want me to go to, to Wall Street. And I can tell you many of my students, because of my story, they come, they sit in my class and they start their own business. And just the other day, one of the students came to me and said, Patrick, I was in your class. My parents wanted me to go to Wall Street and now I started the business that you know, has some social impact. And so I see how my story now contributes to so many other people that they can also live their dream and have the guts to decide for themselves and not do what the parents always want them to do. It's an amazing story. Well, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this absolutely fascinating conversation and an incredible story. No, thank you, Chitra. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And as I said, it's the first time that I'm talking publicly about my kidnapping. Wow, thank you for the honor and for trusting me with your story. Yeah, thank you, Chitra. Patrick Struby is a serial social entrepreneur, thought leader, humanitarian, and founder and executive chairman of the Fair Trasa Group, a pioneering social enterprise that lifts marginalized small-scale farmers out of poverty. Fair Trasa is one of the largest organic and fair trade exporters from Latin America, with a vertically integrated business structure impacting over 70,000 direct beneficiaries. For his work with Fair Trasa, Patrick has been selected as an Ashoka Fellow, an Endeavor High Impact Entrepreneur, a Yale World Fellow, and a Gabelli Fellow. Patrick is also an adjunct professor at Fordham University, where he teaches at the Gabelli School of Business. In 2014, the World Economic Forum named Patrick a new champion, and he also is a member of the Clinton Global Initiative. He writes a column at Huffington Post and gives talks around the world on social innovation and related issues. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.